times where you know that task is non-negotiable both in the commercial world because yeah you know, a client has set a deadline mm-hmm. or in the the military world because you know we've got to take that hill yeah and that's when it pays dividends to have invested in yeah. the other in the other two so yeah. you you can start to sweat the people yeah you can start to put pressure on the team mm-hmm. in order to achieve that task but you can't do that all the time you can't be at 100 percent all the time and, and, yeah yeah 100 i'd want to be careful i didn't come across a sort of transactional but effectively every time you make a down payment the down payment on an individual's needs or, or or an investment in the team's capability then that is potentially a withdrawal that you can make when you need to get when when the task is non-negotiable Hello and welcome to Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we compare and contrast the business and the military environments when it comes to things like teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, organisations, culture, decision making and strategy. This is the second in our series of interviews with Lieutenant Colonel Joe Brown from the Royal Logistics Corps. If you happen to listen to last week's episode, you will know that Joe is an army officer who has recently finished his command of a regiment within the Royal Logistics Corps, but prior to that, specialised in counter-improvised explosive devices. And last week, we talked at length about the nuances of small team command, especially in high-risk environments. And that led on to a discussion about coaching and mentoring and I said at the time that we would explore that in a future podcast well now here we are so welcome back Joe oh thanks for having me Gareth last week um we we talked about your career and and we used that sort of the vehicle for exploring some of these topics and it was a really interesting discussion there was something you talked about towards the end where we were moving on to the idea of how you bring on and develop subordinates within your team within your organization and we talked a little bit about the junior officers and junior officers being mentored if you like by their sergeants by their senior ncos um, and the fact that we could probably get away with not having those platoon commanders those troop commanders and the sergeants would be able to get on with the job themselves but the real value was that it gave them the leadership and command experience to be better leaders and managers later in their careers when they come back to do things like company and squadron command they get to make their mistakes early they get to develop um and you were talking uh, about how you were working i don't know whether this was subunit command or, or regimental command but how you were working with your organization uh, and developing people and you said a phrase which i wrote down at the time it's the decent thing to do and that struck me because I think we all know that it is, of course, as, as anybody is in a position of authority that has responsibility over people within their organisation. I think we all know it's the decent thing to do is to help them, bring them along, develop them. But just because it's the decent thing to do doesn't mean it's the thing that is done. And, and I was reflecting on this after the conversation and I was thinking about certainly from my experience in, in the military, about the the amount of time people spend developing their subordinates outside of what is expected in terms of career courses 
um, and and the, the sort of specific career management, but the just general mentoring and development. And the, I saw some really, really good examples of it, but I saw lots of opportunities that were missed because it isn't part of you know the everyday job. And I think although it's the decent thing to do, it's a decent thing to do often on top of what you're expected to do and therefore doesn't always happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can accept that, that for some that might, that might view it like that. I mean, when we were talking before, we also talked about doing the basics on operations to keep people alive. Yeah. Right? And sometimes it's stuff that's unseen. The stuff happens in the middle of the night at the unloading bay that you make sure that the soldier has got a torch you know, pointing down onto the weapon to make sure that the, there's no no round in the chamber when once they've unloaded, and that means they're not going to have a negligent discharge, and that and it's safer. I suppose that you know, outside of that little bubble, that little moment between the the probably relatively junior leader and the person who's junior to them, that's a that's effectively a private moment between those two people. And outside that bubble, nobody knows that that's going to happen. But the good leaders do it; they do it right when no one's looking, and that makes that little action safer. And I think that that's what good leaders do with regards to mentoring. So. As a CO, I could look down to my OCs, had four task squadrons and a, and a light aid detachment from the REMI that, that maintain our equipment. So five squadron OCs. Well, I don't know what's happening in it, in their SHQ, in their own headquarters every day. And I don't need to know. But what I like to think was that they would take that time to mentor that troop commander or that senior NCO to say, listen, how you just did that? We could have done that better. Or how did you think that went? And then have a conversation that isn't either coaching or mentoring. And I think too much time spent on dividing up the difference between the two things. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're about making individuals better, and which may, that aggregates together to make teams better, which aggregates together to make organisation better. So the additional effort that you want to hope people are putting into bringing on those that usually, usually that coaching and mentoring goes down the way, um, but not always, it can be reversed. Um, but that activity no one knows it's no one could see it happening it could you could get away with not doing it uh, i agree not enough of it happens but actually we've got to find a way of putting value on it because the value of not teaching your juniors to be better in the future is that your future organization fails yeah especially in a bottom-up organization yeah i so I, i'm going to push back a little bit on that in that i agree there is lots of activity that happens outside of the oversight of the command so that's about making sure people are doing the right thing and of course part of that is teaching them the right thing so that they learn how to do the job but that's subtly different from developing people to step up to the next job hopefully there are there are instances of not only the sergeant being there to check mm. you know the chambers of the weapon but the sergeant taking a lance corporal along to say, you're about to go on a junior command course and promote, you know, you do this, you check your section. Yeah, so I agree that you, there is a difference between coaching and mentoring people in order that they can do their job effectively and then finding that space to either step aside or back or however you see it to give that opportunity to that more junior person to step up and experience the the greater responsibility that, that they will that they hopefully aspire to have and that the organization needs them to be able to have another guy i worked with uh previously he sort of said to me you know you've got to allow the second 11 to have a go sometimes and i do think that in organizations we tend to put our best people on our most challenging yeah. tasks and that 
can sometimes mean that those people who aren't deemed to be our best people, and it's massively subjective, I think, especially in the military where we're not making money, that the people who are not necessarily seen as our best might be might become despondent because they don't get those opportunities. So there's something about generating that behaviour uh, within your wide within your immediate team, and then hoping that, hopefully it percolates out into your organisation to say, hey, listen, you know, if 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 this thing doesn't go perfectly well, yeah, that's totally fine. But that 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 leader now has had that opportunity, and they are going to learn from it. But, but it requires a mindset. It requires perhaps an articulation of risk. Sometimes you might say, "I'm going to do this thing," and and I'm accepting no risk in, on this one. I want my and, best people to do yeah. it. Yeah. But then you might flip around. So actually, we've got an opportunity for more risk to be taken here. So as long as things are safe, then let's experiment. Whether that be in outputs or we're in terms of the inputs that we have, that might be a way that you can do that within your team. I think. Yeah. So for that to happen, of course, if you're if you're willing to not Put your best team forward. You know, as you say, the second eleven get get a shot, uh, and you're anticipating that the results might not be as good as they could be. You're going to take a bit of risk. Your boss, mm-hmm. your superior, has to be willing to accept that and understand that as well, don't they? So, how do you build that into the culture to make sure that your boss understands mm-hmm. that your results aren't always as good as they could be because? you're spending some of your capital on developing the team for the future yeah i suppose you can you can do it by way of a sort of pre-mortem with with your boss hey listen i've got this event coming up i'm intending to take some risk on it so you you know it's expectation management if you like yeah so if you're going to do this if you're going to find an event or an opportunity for more junior people to step up or perhaps not more junior but you know not your a team if you think it's going to be an event or a process that's going to draw the attention of of your own boss then you need to warn them off that that's that you're using this as a developmental opportunity i think it's courteous to make sure that they understand that actually this is an investment in the future growth of the organization whether it be a business or regiment or or, or whatever i've got a theory about what we ask of our leaders i'll I'll unpack it with you if if you you yeah please do so um when we talk about rhetoric in the uk you know now in modern english like we it tends to have an association with being about empty rhetoric you know, yeah, you know, yeah yeah but actually rhetoric in the ancient greek is the art of persuasion and for me that's means leadership and people used to pay the philosophers to be taught rhetoric so they were effectively paying to be taught yeah. to, to be leaders and aristotle said that there's three pillars of rhetoric and he yeah. talks about ethos, ethos yeah pathos, ethos, logos logos yeah you haven't talked about this on the we haven't yet no so for me, I was not a classical scholar, so I had to give some Google to this when I when I when I found when I heard this term. But actually, having having dug into it and understand it, I actually think it's really pertinent for for, for a military perspective, and I, and I kind of think it's probably exportable to to business. So the way I see it is, if we get our junior officers, and I said about you know that really most junior officers are kind of having an apprenticeship. When you look at them as captains, you say, well, actually, what we really need from our captains at regimental duty and on the staff is we need the logos, we need the logic. They need to know their know their stuff. You know, can this vehicle get from here to there on one tank of fuel, or do we need to stop and have a refuel? How's that going? Is that going to have an impact on the route that we take or the time it's going to take? So, yeah, you've got to expect them to know their business, right? Yeah. And if they can't do that, then there's not many redeeming features if they if they don't know that if they can't do the facts, the logos. Yeah, and of course there are lots of courses that junior officers go on to learn. Oh yeah, the attributes of their particular specialism. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and they can be a very effective squadron level captain if they're just, just doing that yeah but if we want to say to them okay that's great but actually 
you aspire to be a major at some time. So therefore, we're going to have to layer on top of that logos. And for me, the next thing's ethos. And ethos, you know, you, that word's in more, more wide use in, in English now. But you think about it in terms of ethics, you think about it in terms of trust. And for me, what it meant as a commanding officer was, can I layer this major up with loads of work? Fire and forget almost to them. You mission command, crack on. You need to know you're going to be able to trust them. And that comes back to, are they going to fess up to you when they can't deliver on deliver? Do you trust their, their good old fashioned values and standards? You know, are, are their attitudes and behaviours, you know, um, completely, you know, beyond reproach? Yeah. That's not to say that you'd expect shady behaviour from a from a captain, but you might, <laughs> there's just a slightly, there's just a, there's an expectation of more proper behaviour the more senior you are. So you, you layer on top of Logos and you might have someone who's perfectly logical and knows all the facts, but could be a bit of a rogue and a bit of a live wire. You, you always want to see those those rough edges knocked off, and that contributes towards their ethos as they yeah. as they get to, as they get up and some more senior. And then for me, the next step, and this is when you know, if I'm mentoring majors, I'm going to say, right, well, listen, you've got the logos. Otherwise, you wouldn't already be a major. It's clear that you know your business. It's clear that for me, I feel like I can trust you. Or if I've had majors where I haven't really felt that I can trust them, or haven't felt that I can in, leave them with an intent and that they'll get yeah. what I mean and come yeah. back to me. Then I've perhaps you know used there's formal me mechanisms of, of of showing them how I want them to behave, but that next step is pathos and pathos being the root of the words like empathy and sympathy. And so uh, for more senior leaders, they're going to have to lead in such a way where the they're not there on the ground at the point of the spear in the most dangerous bit. Yeah. Right. So that you'd expect a major to be leading their company, it perhaps in close combat, they're going to be at the point of most danger. The CEO. The lieutenant colonel, he might not be because he, there's, there's going to be many such points and he can't get around the battlefield. So therefore, for our more senior leaders, they're going to have to lead through pathos, you know, so the empathy or uh, empathy or sympathy. And basically, for me, what that means is being able to leave your intent on a group. It's like a personal brand or a vision statement or a North Star, whatever yeah. you want to call it, you call it any of those really. And then say, right, whilst you work in my gang my organization this is how i want us to behave and this is why and you know you don't want to have leadership by um slogan or like bumper sticker but lots of army leaders will have kind of three a's or three r's and you know robust ready and, and resilient or whatever it is now they're kind of catchphrases that they hang their messages from but they'll return to them yeah and they'll and, uh, and repeat them and actually in my experience even the most junior soldiers will remember what the what their leaders are their three a's or three b's or whatever they are there's that important message because it's just three words that soldiers can kind of resonate with and say oh okay i can't remember the rest of the stuff you want to do but in the in the fog of war or in the absence of direct direction in the here and now i can remember that my leader wants that yeah so i think there's something here about we've got to we've got to find a way of inculcating in our in our leaders as they become more senior or aspire to be more senior moving them from logos through ethos and then into pathos I think that's really interesting. It, it resonates quite a lot with some of the things Chris and I have talked about in previous episodes. So we did one episode really early on about the definitions of missions, purpose, value, mm -hmm. goals, all those kind of things. And, and of course, when you talk about ethos at that major level, that sort of middle management level, if you like, being about behaving to the right values and standards and inculcating that in their subordinates and their team, yeah, that that strikes me as very much being aligned with the vision and the purpose of the organization and then pathos is almost at that strategic level mm -hmm. um, yeah. and in a, yeah. another episode we we discussed and unpacked the term strategy 
um, which is of course the art of the general so it makes sense that you're at that more senior level and you're thinking about longer term perspectives where you want to get to as an organization and therefore you're having to not only tell people what you want them to achieve now but how how that links to the yeah. goals that you've stated yeah. and you've got to tell that story yeah um, and i i think i mentioned that to chris the the idea that as a brigade commander or you know divisional commander you have the immediate leadership challenge of your headquarters the 100 or 200 people that are in and around where you work every day but then you've got this much more ethereal leadership challenge of leading the division or the brigade or, or whatever it is where you don't see them every day they don't see you every day yeah and therefore you have to lead through the story that you tell and i, I think this certainly in the u.s military we see it a lot more but there are lots of examples of it across loads of nations commanders from history where you know they create a brand and i know when i was operating in kabul i was working in a u.s chain of command and people referred to the commanders by their nicknames or talked about them in terms of the characters that they have and if you think about you know, montgomery famously wore two cat badges um, and always had a beret whereas Patton always had a combat helmet you know, they were setting their brand and I think that's part of that pathos telling the story yeah. of who yeah. they are, what they represent, and how that links to what they're trying to achieve with an organization. Yeah, no, I that I mean that resonates with me. I think you know, my my, my level of leadership so far is not, you know, is is is, is that is that the unit? You haven't got a corn cob pipe just yet. <laughs> no, no, no. But I do think that um having a having a, a personal brand and and if, you know, in the, the example of Patton, you know, actually because that helmet signifies a combat ethos and that's and therefore it helps him you know inculcate in in his mind in the in the minds of his soldiers you know what he wants from them we had a bit of a challenge when i was commanding officer of of the logistic regiment which is that just before i arrived the unit had won the army cup for rugby right rugby union so you know big sport in the army hotly competed my predecessor's commanding officer had played in the team as was an international rugby player himself so as a, as a schoolboy, so you know, huge, huge uh, tradition of sporting excellence. It's really interesting that a lot of people, when I arrived, said, "Well, I, you know, are you as keen on rugby as your predecessor was?" And I had to say to them, "Well, listen, I, I'm not anywhere as good as <laughs> I hardly ever played, but yeah, I mean, I, su I support sporting excellence." But actually, as a as a scratch behind the behind the surface, actually, what I found was that some people who liked rugby thought this was a good thing that I continued to support it, but some people actually felt that. Actually, the rugby players were being privileged because they were away playing right, rugby, but yeah. they were army champions and they'd not had to do some of the hard yards. They'd had to do less guard stints, you know, or, or whatever. And other people had had to back through them. And there was, I wouldn't say simmering resentment, but there was a potential for it to become not the, inclu not the inclusive rallying achievement for the unit that you know, perhaps people might think it was, but would be. And um, I kind of, I got to thinking about what does it mean to a soldier who doesn't like rugby, who's got to do an extra guard shift because the guy who should be on guard is actually playing fly half on, on Wednesday yeah. in a semi-final of the Army Cup? What does that mean to that soldier? And actually, the point that I made to them is actually it's, it's kind of about brand because before, it wasn't something I had to make up, it was very true that when I was working in the Army headquarters, before I came to command the unit, when that regiment won the Army Cup, People said to me at my desk, why, why are you going to that regiment that's just won the Army Cup? 
it brought kudos to the unit. It brought kudos to the whole unit. And I, and I said to the soldiers when I talked to them about this particular thing, which is that in my mind, it was like about brand recognition. So people knew our regiment was yeah. the army champions. And that meant that it was associated the same as Coca-Cola sponsoring the World Cup. People associated that name with, with happiness. And that would play forward. And that brought us, you know, it might be the difference between one soldier getting promoted and not getting promoted because they were because the people will see that they're from that unit and actually you know they might not have played in the final themselves but they've been part of that team effort and so i think for me there was something about pathos which is if you can link the story to why somebody relatively junior has got to do something that they might not want to do if you if anything you can do as as a leader to help do that then you're going to be more effective and by extension you've got to find ways of inculcating that in your junior leaders they come through that they, they need to know that they're going to have to do that in the future i have heard you talk about that theory before but it's really interesting to to explore it and and i think trying to think about the parallels between military command and commercial or business organizations is often quite difficult because we don't have the clear kind of organizational grouping the ranks on our chest and, and and those sorts of things but it's really useful i think to to start to think about who's doing the logos you know the the operational <clears throat> delivery of tasks yeah um and we we've talked about this on the pod- podcast before that that goes hand in hand with tactics the mm-hmm. delivery of capability who's doing the ethos who's trying to make sure that the application of that tactical activity of that you know day-to-day operations is in line with the values and the standards and the overall philosophy and then who's setting the tone who's setting that narrative now, of course your command was mostly during the period of covid yeah yeah it was yeah. so firstly how do you do pathos how do you create an, a personal narrative when you can't get around and meet a glad hand you know the the men and women under your command how do you ensure that your middle management your squadron commanders are managing that ethos empowering the logos below that and then going back right back to the beginning of last week's podcast when you talked about you when you were doing eod operations and you made everybody shave because you wanted the team to operate at the levels of the people that they were supporting yeah 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 how do you ensure that that logos is happening down at those junior leadership levels when you're restricted by covid that must have been really challenging yeah i think i'll take the last one first so about the logos right so i think the thing about with covid was all of a sudden there was a load more logos that we had to apply right so there's all rules you know the force yeah. we call them the force health force health protection measures and there were so many and they changed weekly and daily so yes. it, it was almost like a full-time job and i had an absolutely superb quartermaster he's like a senior usually someone who joined the army as a soldier gone all the way through the ranks and commissioned and then they're usually you know senior major so uh been in the army you know, 30 years uh and he, he had an absolutely superb quartermaster who, who helped keep me keep me legal in terms of making sure that we knew what policy needed to be implemented but it came down to you know soldiers washing their hands before they went into the cookhouse and people wearing their masks when the mask mandate came in to help the hands face space all of that there were so many what was in what was out it became very intricate so there was a load more of that logos 
And actually, I think there's probably two perspectives you can take on it. One, which was that because there were all of these rules and actually soldiers, completely impossible to imagine that any walk of society would 100% go along with all the rules all the time, you know, yeah. without any effort. This is impossible. But soldiers became good at self-policing and they knew what right was and they knew what wrong was. And that it was, I actually think that it, it sort of bred more moral courage because people started to realise that if they didn't do that thing, wash their hands before they went into the cookhouse, as an example, they would get called out on it. Yeah. And then perhaps it then made them more aware of doing the other basic things that we would want soldiers to do. So you asked me about sort of ethos, pathos, logos in, in the pandemic. I think, first off, we had more logos to contend with during the pandemic. And you said that makes people think about the other the other aspects of yeah. the things that they have to do day to day. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was because the impact of not doing it was more visceral? Yeah, if you don't wash your hands, you might spread that disease to you know, your loved ones, or you might get ill, or rather than a lot of what we do in the military is based around this idea of if and when we're on operations, if you're not doing these things now, yeah. you're not going to be doing it then. Well, it was, I mean, yeah, it, there was that. I actually, as I, as you were speaking, I was thinking, about, I remember saying at the time of the pandemic, we're used to getting trained up to go and do something dangerous away from home. Yeah. All of a sudden, we just started doing something dangerous, which was just doing our job. But we we weren't away from home. We were with our families. Yeah. And there was, so there was no run up. It was, now we're doing it like this. And our families are in danger. So, you know, when we're in Afghanistan, you go to the cookhouse in Afghanistan, there's somebody there saying, wash your hands before you go into the cookhouse. That was because of not traditional diarrhea and vomiting, you know, infection control that any, any soldier's been on, on operations would understand. Yeah. They're not used to washing their hands before they go in the cookhouse in their barracks. Yeah. But now all of a sudden there was a reason to do it. So you had a soldier, uh, you know, at the start you had a junior NCO there telling people to do it. But then people started to do that and that just became normalised. So, yeah, I think there was something about uh, the imperative to, to to apply these rules to keep ourselves safe and our wives and children, our yeah. brothers, mothers, you know, our friends, it became a, it became a thing. So I think so. I think you asked about. I'll go. I'll go to Pathos next. The first one you mentioned about you. You sort of said, "How did I do yeah, that?" Sure. Yeah, and um, couldn't get around a glad hand. Yeah, it's really tricky. So we tried the team's call, if you like. I tried to do. I before the pandemic um, kicked in. Um, and my predecessors had instigated we used to have they used to have like fireside chats and they did with by rank groups of private soldiers junior ncos senior ncos and then do it with the warrant officers and the, and the officers and you know he and the rsm and then when i came in i carried it on me and the rsm would have a discussion what is annoying you about this unit what can we do better what are you concerned about what do you know about in the army that you or not know about that you want to know about what can i do to, to help you out and then we'd we'd start with the juniors we'd go to the seniors we'd do it over about a week we then war game the things that came up and then we'd have a sort of you said we will do type type session. Well, we tried to really, we just tried to do that on, well, it wasn't on the team's call actually because people, not everybody had a MOD laptop. So actually we did it via Slido to get the questions. And then I did it on a, like a live stream on Instagram or something where we set up a Facebook group so that we could have a, we didn't want any, anybody, any old person dialing and we wanted it just to be our soldiers. And I think my sense was that soldiers reacted quite well to the fact that it probably felt a bit scrappy yeah. you know i was i you know it's different being in a room full of soldiers and being asked questions you know what about this sir and then you can say what it is but when it's coming over the internet and you're responding in real time and there's people liking it or 
or downvoting it as you're speaking yeah. you know you sometimes it felt a bit scrappy but my sense was that people reacted quite well to that we also did really quite new it felt quite unusual but you know we didn't get the whole regiment on on parade as we used to do in you know three ranks in front of this commanding officer before pt but at certain times we had people in kind of big blobs across the whole parade square and now to shout pretty loud and people sort of socially distanced i mean that felt a bit awkward um i'm sure for everybody but people understood the, the purpose for it and yeah. i wanted to explain to people why we were doing such thing and, and the unit was hugely busy and I, um you know we were at one point i was in greece with a subunit a squadron i had a squadron in croatia and a, a squadron from another unit attached to me they were in slovakia at this all at the same time and I had a squadron in Amman and a squadron in Kabul. Yeah. Um, and they were orchestrating the, the withdrawal from um, from Kabul. So we were literally globally dispersed. And that had to be, that was a you know good old team's call. Yeah. But that's pretty normal, isn't it, for command? I think it was. I think it, it did, for, you know, when you have people in different time zones yeah. and different tactical situations, it is relatively normal to lead over the radio. I, I you know, lots of yeah. military leaders would understand that. But um, I think the... I'll zoom back in on your point about you sort of said, how did you ensure that your your middle management did the ethos? Mm. I think one of the things that I made sure I did was I realised that I was on kind of a lot of one-to-many comms channels. So me on send on Teams and then people coming back to me with a quick back brief. And that's fine, but people are speaking in, you know, Colonel, I've got three headlines for you, nothing else to report, you know, and that's great. That's their 30 seconds on the radio once a week or whatever. And you think, is that person okay? I sort of tried to instigate, you know, one-to-ones with people and there's quite a lot of one-to-ones with uh, with my subordinate subunit commanders and they have like subject matter experts, welfare officer, padre, quartermaster, some other captains that with, with specialist output. So I, I, I'm trying to arrange those. I think actually we used to put them in and then I, I'd say to the individual, listen, if I haven't got anything for you, but I'm not cancelling this meeting, like we can just sit and talk about your family yeah. or... or your kids or whatever you want to talk about in that time but it's time for you if you've got nothing to say and you want to wrap it up after 10 minutes and you're going for a run that's cool with me but it is my i'm sort of giving you my time if you like yeah and i mean i'd like to think that, that was a form of mentorship because you're kind of looking out for your teams you're the individuals that form your teams their own you know yeah, mental health and well-being and you know you could tell that people were they worried about their parents they were worried about their kids they you know they there was huge uncertainty. So just having a, you know, human moment, albeit one that you had to kind of diarise and have a uh, and have a hold over Skype and perhaps in a different continent, I I think that 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 helped. I made a point of saying to the team, look, you can WhatsApp me whenever you want, any time, not a day. But I'm not gonna. I don't expect you to answer my WhatsApp any time, not a day. You can do it whenever you when it, and it yeah. was. And I saw a good colleague of mine had a similar thing on his emails. He said, you know, if you get an email from me at three o'clock in the morning, it's because I've got a wife and a, and a young nipper. And I, that's when I'm doing my work. I don't expect a response for 48 hours. You know, yeah. you're quite clear on that. And you see that a bit more often now. And I think, I think that's useful. Well, I think that'll be a good time to take a quick break there. And when we come back, we will continue to talk about the parallels between command during COVID and some of the challenges that we feel in the commercial world. See you after the break. It's interesting because you're bringing in a lot of 
convocation there that I think the listeners who aren't from a military background will will resonate with, you know, because it's things like out of out, out of office hours emails mm-hmm. or how do you manage teams over Zoom calls or, or whatever it is, which is quite different from a lot of our conversations on this podcast, where quite often we're saying, well, in a military context, you know, we're like you said, you shine your torch down the you know, the breach of a, a weapon to make sure that there's no rounds in the chamber. Yeah, and we use that as an analogy. But actually what we're talking about here are real visceral management and leadership problems yeah. that were just as apparent for the commercial world as they were in the military. From my perspective, and I saw this with, with several commercial organisations, it also forced them to reckon with those sorts of challenges. So pre-pandemic, people were still getting out-of-office hours emails. People Mm. were still getting, you know, WhatsApp from their boss at 11 o'clock at night and then weren't sure whether they were needed to answer those there and then or whether they'd be judged if they didn't. And actually, the pandemic and the having to work remotely as a default forced a lot of those conversations to happen, forced a lot of the processes to be put in place to make sure that we are you know, looking after our people. And I, I think it's really clear from your explanation how much you cared about the, the well-being of your organisation as well as the mission and the output. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, so at back of Sandhurst, uh, one of the first things you're taught as an officer cadet, as a you know, trainee army officer is... Uh, John Adair's action-centered leadership and I think you discussed in one of your uh, one of your earlier podcasts you know uh, team task and individual and I think actually as it's often remembered being taught it's task team and individual that's how it's but I think that's a miss miss a misremember I think actually Adair did didn't have task first now for me it's really hard to say as a military leader but actually if if one of in most instances actually if there's task team and individual, if I've got to trade out one of those, most of the time, I prefer to trade out task because yeah. I feel that, you, I mean, there's times when, when it's a non-negotiable often, if you have got to, if you've got to pay out one of them, it's probably let's compromise on the task rather than burning, burning the individual or damaging the team. Yeah. Because for me, it's about the future task or oh, wait, you've already got to be set for the future. Yeah. Task. I think that, yeah. that's really interesting. And when we talked about Adair's ball, one of the really might have been the first episode the yeah we, we we touched upon the point of team task individual is very present and of course you've got to future proof the team mm-hmm. future proof the individual and future proof the task and, and as you said there are times where you know that task is non-negotiable mm-hmm. both in the commercial world because yeah you know, a client has set a deadline mm-hmm. or in the, the military world because you know we've got to take that hill yeah and that's when it pays dividends to have invested in yeah. the other in the other two. So yeah. you you can start to sweat the people. Yeah. You can start to put pressure on the team mm-hmm. in order to achieve that task. But you can't do that all the time. You can't be at hundred percent all the time. And, and, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I'd want to be careful. I didn't come across the sort of transactional, but effectively, every time you make a down payment for down payment on an individual's needs or 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 an investment in the team's capability. Then that is potentially a withdrawal that you can make when you need to get when when the task is non-negotiable. But yeah, I'd be careful about making that sound too trans- transactional. No, I don't think it does at all. I think I think it, it it's very clear that it's about you know investment in willingness, 
investment yeah. in yeah. in the team's ability to step up and you know act up when rather than carrot and stick kind of transactional uh, approach, which which is really interesting because I think from a commercial perspective we quite often think about the military as you know it is that discipline and discipline is what allows organisations to do really dangerous things, but actually you and I both know that it's not, it's it's cohesion that allows yeah. teams to do really dangerous things. And, and discipline is, is actually something you don't have to resort to very often at all. It's incredibly important to have it in the background. Yeah. We have, you know, very distinct rules. We have point regulations. We have, you know, processes for discipline, but actually very rarely needed to be implemented because... yeah. The team is so well for me that on board that, with the mission. The, you know, the best bit of discipline is, you know, I suppose self-discipline. That's a bit of a kind of military truism, but discipline that's, you know, not no no capital D, as in it is about discipline is the good habits that the team gets into yeah. rather than the than the stick that you mentioned. And I mentioned in the in our last episode when when I was speaking about French and Ravens five forms of social power and uh, which for me means leadership, social power equals leadership. And they talk about reward and discipline as being two of them. Yeah. Now, for me, actually, if you look at military, actually reward, it's quite difficult to, to reward people instantaneously in the military. We work on a lot of deferred gratification. There's no bonus. There's no, yeah, there's some allowances for some unpleasant work. But, you know, effectively, yeah. Yeah, if yeah. it's about transactional like money in your in a soldier's pocket, actually, that's about... Do some hard work now. You get promoted in the future. That means that you're going to earn more in the future. You get more responsibility. Your pension's bigger when you retire. It's about deferred gratification. So our reward, our, our, our carrot, is actually a long way in the distance. Yeah. Our stick can be pretty, you know, as a commanding officer, you've got, you, you, you've got vest, powers vested in you akin, akin to kind of like a magistrate. You can put somebody in prison, but you, can't, you, can, you can't use that lever, um, you know, willy-nilly because you have no people left. Yeah, uh, and you yeah. and you won't buy that. You won't buy that goodwill. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So I think yeah, discipline. It's I think the external view is that it's all about the discipline, but I would say it's it's all about the self discipline. You and I, in a, in a previous life, both worked in an organisation, a military organisation, a, a hybrid unit, right? Half regular forces, half reserve forces, um, and so reserve forces come in lots of different flavours, but are generally people who spend most of their time in their civilian careers and then do military activities and additional uh, additional work. And it was really interesting. I don't know if you found it, how many people came into the unit having spent most of their time you know, in civilian organisations and were really shocked at how little the military shouts at each other. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's all very civil conversations, mostly over a cup of coffee. It's problem solving by teams rather than a sergeant major, you know, pinning somebody up against the wall and swearing at them and shouting at them and covering them with spittle, which is the kind of Hollywood view. Yeah. Uh, and I've worked, you know, very closely with the US Marines, who are perhaps the most, you know, glamorised, you know, you've got films like Full Metal Jacket and stuff. Uh, and of course, that is how it is in basic training. But working with them day to day, mm -hmm. you know, very rarely do people lose their tempers. They're, we're all human, people do. But I think I've said that on the podcast before, I've I've shouted, other than times where it's just been noisy, I've shouted because I've lost my temper twice in my whole career, and I'm ashamed of 
both instances because I see that as a failure on my part, a failure of leadership, rather than the way we get things done. I think there's, there's a final element to this. So to bring it all the way back to sort of where we started in terms of uh, mentoring and development, you mentioned the, the difficulty of identifying the value yeah, the immediate value of investing in people. So we talked about you know making sure people are doing their jobs you know, here and now, but that idea of making sure they can do the next job, they can step up and take on that next responsibility. How do you? How does an organisation value that investment? Because you are taking capacity away from the here and now. And we talked about you know, the identification, taking risk, and uh, and all of that good stuff. But how do you justify that when the pressure's on, when you're limited on resources, when the deadlines are there, when you've got to achieve stuff and the temptation is to put your A-team forward because they'll just get it cracked? Yeah. How do you recognise the value and in investment in the future? Well, I think that constantly reiterating it with SIP through senior leadership discussions is, 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 is useful. You've got to remind people uh, you've got to remind people of that value. Leaders have got to set that example. So a uh, small example, we have in the military appraisal system, you have an appraisal every year, you have your empire, your mid-year appraisal, uh, the six-month point. And I've seen quite often when, I, I, I've always been like hard over, right? we, you know, I if you work for me, I owe you an empire. And that's not just a, an email. It's not just a conversation. So it's, an empire is a mid-period appraisal review. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and and, I, and for me, it needs to start with some self-reflection from the subject. They, they'll give me their views on what do they think they've done well, what are they proud of, what do they think they, what do they, and the most important bit on the document is what do they think they could have done better? That's the most important bit in the document. Not what I think they could do better, what do they think they could do better? Yeah. Now, I've, done, I've been doing it in this method, effectively, start, you know, asking my subordinates to, to start with self-reflection. I've been doing it now for about five or six years. And some people need quite a lot of encouragement to to come out of their shells and offer it they they kind of think i think some of them think have thought well if i don't tell him the things that i do badly he'll think i'm great because he won't yeah. notice them yeah you have to get past that when i'm conducting this empire with them that's the that's the first thing that happens and then it's always a an iteration so i'll i'll have a look at it i'll probably email it back to him and say hey listen if you put this this and this can you answer you know comments in the in the in the margin how about these points and then let's have another look. And then the, then the and then the final thing is a face-to-face -face conversation. So almost like a three or four stage phase. It could be more actually, depending on how it goes. So time is it's time intensive, both for them and for me. When I when I have the face-to-face, -face, I'll say to them, before we get into any of this, how did you find the process? And most of them say, Well, uh, I've never done this before, apart from with you, if I if they were with me last year. Everybody seems to be grateful for the time, you know, they they have recognized that I've invested in it. Yeah. Um, and I think that, and I like to therefore think that that sets an example for them to do it. Other people have joined, and just recently I, I did this process with somebody and actually he, the first time I've done it for an officer from that service. Uh, and he, he so I've worked, I lead a joint team at the moment. And he said, oh, Empire, oh, uh, oh, I didn't know whether we were going to do one. He said, I've been in quite a lot of previous jobs. I've just, I've just been a quick email. No, this guy's a high performing, he's a, he's a high performer, right. like a high potential. And I think I think and I made the point to him, which is that your previous leaders might have been very happy with what you were doing and therefore they don't need to, don't need to have bothered to do an empire 
with you because they've got no feedback for you. But that touches on your point, Gareth, which is that often people give feedback to get someone good enough at the job they're doing. Yeah. But it's the empire's got to be about how do you fulfill your potential? And that's one of the questions that I've added to the question, which is where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And then ne the next question is what's going to stop you from doing that? And that could be anything. It could be a personal barrier, could be self-doubt, could be imposter syndrome, could be uh, I really need to have a master's to do that. I haven't got a master's. Well, guess what the answer is then if you want to do it. Uh, and so, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the way that you can make the case for mentoring in an organisation is to make sure that at the top level, leaders do it. Yeah. And they can also buy in. I, I was fortunate um, I'm, in my next job, I'm moving on promotion. And as part of that promotion, I, we had a, a, a an additional week's training back at Sandhurst, uh, the home of you know British Army officer um, leadership training. And as part of that course, I had a, a professional coach, yeah, um, f funded you know external coach that was that, that was funded to have a couple of hours and some three sixty reporting, etc., and some analysis. And I, I found it tremendously rewarding. I, I spoke about it on LinkedIn saying it was really good. And actually, a friend of mine, a civilian, actually ex army, but you know, he only did a couple of years, sort of two decades ago now a founder of a, of a tech startup saw my comment and said listen it, i agree it's great but people can't afford it because good coaches are very very expensive and so you get back to this point about yeah. how do you make the case if if i would say if a, if a company's leadership and organization's leadership is willing to fund it either buying in externals or willing to resource it eg from the time of those leaders yeah then it trickles down if you if there's nothing going on above you yeah it's going to be difficult to imagine it happening bottom up yeah i get there's, there's two additional points as well which um are, are probably so obvious to you that you haven't talked about them but the army invests in you know you, as you say you've been promoted and so you've been sent back to Sandhurst to do additional training yeah reflection discussion um and, and i've been involved in in some of these uh these staff courses and they are it's not training you don't go and get lectured at it's discussion it's self-reflection there's yeah uh, led in very very many cases very much so yeah. um and the second thing so, so firstly i don't think that happens enough in the commercial world i don't think organizations take time out of their day-to-day -day operations to invest in their people's development because of course in the commercial world you take time out you're not making money yeah but what you fail to see is the short-sightedness of that of developing your people mm -hmm. is going to save you money in recruitment, hr recruitment yeah. retention yeah. and it's going to mean that your people are better at making money in the future and the second thing is uh in the military you know writ large it doesn't start at a certain rank no command leadership and management training happens from the day that you walk in through the gates on your first day of basic training and get your hair cut mm -hmm. all the way through your career yeah. so at every level from the most junior soldier all the way up to the most senior general you are constantly being challenged to develop your leadership potential your managerial skills and of course that is tailored as you go through but but i think that again is something that the commercial world sometimes doesn't recognize and we, the army does this as well. In fact, all of the military does this as well as the commercial world. We fetishize the word leadership. And so, and we think straight away that that means the people at the top. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, Sandhurst talks about itself being the center of army leadership, 
rather than the center of army culture or command or yeah and, and that's an interesting nuance because i think you know we know that leadership and organizational culture are two sides of the same coin yeah and to be a good leader you also have to understand culture yeah and i've talked about this on the podcast before there are loads of books on leadership and we think that it you know to be a good leader i've got to read all the books mm -hmm. and actually i'm very much coming around to the view of to be a good leader you've got to make sure everybody else has read the books yeah so that you can understand where your limits on leading mm -hmm. end and where the people below you their responsibility their authority that begins and, and getting that balance right and i know john Creswell a couple of weeks ago talked about the boxes uh, and his job being to identify and set the boundaries mm -hmm. for people to then own their own space within that box and that comes back to this idea of command um, I'd like to finish on um, a, a quote that I, I found online um, from an article you wrote for the Logistics magazine. The Sustainer. The Sustainer. Yeah, yeah. Command is a privilege, and when you are selected for it, you need to be first in for the bad stuff and last in for the good stuff. You aren't owed anything, and you don't get to choose what fate throws at you. Now, that was you uh, writing about your lessons from command. And I think that epitomizes the approach that you've uh, articulated in, in these last two sessions about the way that you see command as both a privilege and a sacrifice that you undertake to enable the organization. And I think that's come across very, very clearly. So, yeah, once again, thank you for giving up your time. Thank you're me. welcome back anytime and i think we will draw stump there so if you've liked what you've heard please do follow us on twitter we're at the, the handle battling with biz that's biz with a z but for now though thank you very much for listening and we would love to have you join us again soon bye-bye